All right, welcome to episode 66 of Seize the Moment podcast. And we welcome back a very special guest. We have Liz Dorval. And, you know, I think this is a good problem to have when you don't know if this is her third, fourth, or fifth <laughs> appearance on the show. It's a very good problem. That's true. And <laughs> now I'm thinking about it. It might be my fourth or fifth. Yeah. 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 Definitely one of them. Yeah. And, <laughs> facts. Facts. <laughs> and what we're here to discuss today is the Dunning-Kruger effect. So I'll start off by defining the Dunning-Kruger effect, and then I will jump in. Shoot. Um, so Dunning-Kruger effect in psychology, it's a cognitive bias whereby people with limited knowledge or competence in a given intellectual or social domain greatly overestimate their own knowledge or competence in that domain relative to objective criteria or to the performance of their peers or of people in general. Uh, according to researchers for whom it is named, uh, psychologists David Dunning and Justin Kruger, the effect is explained by the fact that the metacognitive ability to recognize deficiencies in one's own knowledge or competence requires that one possess at least a minimum level of the same kind of knowledge or competence, um, which those who exhibit uh, the effect have not attained. Uh, because they're unaware of their deficiencies, such people generally assume that they're not deficient in keeping with the tendency of most people to uh, choose what they think is the most reasonable and optimal option. So, I mean, just to, you know, sum that up, uh, it's pretty much when somebody with a low competency in a particular area, particular discipline, overestimates their ability in that particular area. Um, for example, say someone who uh, thinks they're an amazing driver, right? Uh, but when in fact they're actually kind of an average driver, maybe there's somebody who's used to driving, maybe let's say not in the city, uh, let's say in a more rural area where there's not a lot of traffic and a lot of things you sort of have to navigate or keep an eye out. Right. Um, maybe they don't have experiences in all facets of driving. So they'll, they'll overestimate their ability. Mm -hmm. um, do you guys have any uh examples or any times you've you've seen sort of displays of Dunning-Kruger? Hmm, I question. do. Go for it. Oh sorry when it came to driving I just remembered an incident. Um, so I was dating uh, this guy for a few years and he had recently gotten his license and whenever he would get behind the wheel he would get a, like some road rage and he would kind of like speak through gritted teeth, like, oh, that person should get off the road. That person's like a crappy driver, stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, and I remember we were on our way to a wedding and she was saying the same thing, like, oh, get off the road, this person, blah, blah, blah. And then he uh, wasn't looking mm -hmm. when he was merging into a toll lane and had his side mirror like clipped off. Mm -hmm. And that was like, five minutes after he was saying that nobody else knew how to drive. <laughs> so, so it's like he's projecting his own inability to drive. And also, and also not willing to take responsibility. I mean, it's like, it's like, is, is everybody just a bad driver or are you sort of at least partially responsible for some of those sort of uh, whatever antics on the road? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely, I, I've seen examples of that too. Um, for example, you know, what's interesting is people also overestimate their ability, let's say, in the field of medicine, right? So um, let's say uh, you're sick and you decide, you know, a lot of people nowadays, they'll look up their symptoms on Google or WebMD or something like that. Mm -hmm. 
and they'll decide based on their Google searches, maybe over a period of, I mean, I'm sure it varies person to person, but say you took uh, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, say even several hours of your time to look into what it is that's ailing you, right? Mm -hmm. How does that compare to someone, like if you went to go see an expert who has studied for 10 years plus mm -hmm. in some cases, uh, how does your ability to Google what it is that, that you may have compared to the knowledge and expertise of an authority figure right. for whom could, you know, exp knows the foundations of, of what it is that's bothering you and being, being able to explain to you, you know, what's going on with you. And even if, even if you didn't uh, buy into that expert's opinion, you could always get a second opinion, right? But uh, to think that you uh, just from Google searching would be able to ascertain all that knowledge on your own. I mean, it's a little, uh, wouldn't you say it's a little arrogant? Yeah. So, I mean, from a clinical perspective, why people like things do that? Um, well, I mean, they do that pretty much just from a human perspective, because obviously they want to know what's going on with them. But I think from a clinical perspective, like um, why they pretty much hold on to particular views is because we have this sort of, um, I'm not sure, I think it is a foul. Yeah, I guess it's overgeneralization as um, cognitive bias. So we kind of have this fallacy where if we see like one or two symptoms online, and if we meet those symptoms, we're like, oh, it must mean that it's like cancer or whatever. So it's like, oh, um, like, let's say, I don't know, uh, who, who is it that says this? I have like um, a client of mine. So she's like afraid of having diabetes. Mm -hmm. And she's like, oh, every time I like go to the bathroom a lot, I'm like, oh, I probably have diabetes. So it's like, it's a generalization, right? So I mean, because frequent urination can mean several things, including guess what, a lot of anxiety. So it's like, you would actually have to go to a doctor in order to make that assessment. But it's so interesting how we kind of go on like these, what? That's great that you said that. I've actually, so there was this one point, uh, you were drinking coffee, right? You were here, I forgot for which particular show yeah and yeah you kept having to go to the bathroom right. and i said damn and just for the audience this is what the coffee looks like so i'm gonna be going to the bathroom pretty frequently Only the best from duncan <laughs> yeah so <laughs> this should be a sponsor but um i digress so yeah i remember seeing you go to the bathroom a lot mm -hmm. uh, to urinate i imagine i don't know for a fact but i've asked you and you told me it was, <laughs> it was either that or cocaine yeah <laughs> all right so i'll believe you of course right and then uh, there were times I've seen in shows or movies, anytime somebody uh, frequently urinated, right. usually that to me uh, that prompted, oh, okay, this is like, this could be an issue, right? right? Uh, maybe also I thought of diabetes right. and all that. But that's great because now being more aware of that particular instance, yeah, who am I? How do I know, <laughs> right? What's, what's actually going on with you unless you're diagnosed or unless you're tested, right? right? So that's, that's actually a perfect real life example. Yeah. And I'm happy you actually illuminated that. So. <laughs> right. So it's like with, when it comes to diagnosing, what people tend to, I guess, fail to realize a lot of times is that it sort of, it takes nuanced, not only nuanced thinking, but sort of an understanding a foundation of like diagnostic manuals. So like for me, it's obviously the DSM um, for like, let's say for doctors, it's probably I forgot the name of it. What did they use? I think it's called the ICD or something like that. Um, so oh, the ICD-10 manual. Yeah, that's what it is, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's what doctors use. So essentially, like when it comes to diagnoses, I mean, you need to be able to differentiate like um, between different sort of clusters of symptoms. So it's very easy to say, well, oh, I have like, um, let's say I have these particular symptoms. So this must be my issue. Um, so obviously, I'm not a doctor, so I can't really speak on medical diagnosis per se. But the idea is, it's like if you have one or two symptoms, and by the way, so but I can't speak on this, people who have hypochondria, right? So that's actually what they do. They overgeneralize. So they take one or two symptoms and they say, oh, this must be A, 
AIDS or this must be cancer or whatever it is. So um, usually what happens is like you think you're an expert, right? Because you kind of, your mind fits together, right? Whatever you already kind of like, let's say whatever you're seeing and then what you kind of already believe in, like let's say the bigger picture. So if you have a constant sort of fear or belief that you have cancer and then you have like evidence of it. So like, let's say if I believe that I- bias? Right. Like you'll that, always be looking for evidence of what it is that you believe. Right. So it's like if I thought I had diabetes or whatever and I kept going to the bathroom and I could have easily been like, oh, see, I knew it. This is already proof of it. Mm-hmm. So it's like for people when it comes to diagnoses, they're very sort of, um, well, it comes from fear. Um, and so we're as a, I guess as a species, we're sort of quick to sort of jump to conclusions because for us, I mean, it sort of benefits our survival because like, let's say you do think you have diabetes, right? And you, I don't know, you go to the doctor and the doctor's like, okay, you're fine. I mean, what happened? Like you wasted a bunch of time. You wasted his time. You wasted your time. But the point is that you at least now know for sure that you were safe, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but what happens, it's like, if you actually did have diabetes and then you went to the doctor, the doctor's like, oh, wow, thank God we caught this now. Or we had some early symptoms of whatever else. So interestingly enough, by the way, uh, sort of my last thought on this is when it comes to hypochondria, sometimes hypochondriacs are actually right. So sometimes they'll go to a doctor and they'll go see two or three people. And like the doctor will be like, there's nothing wrong with you. And then the third doctor will be like, oh shit, no, there actually is something wrong with you. It, it, it happens rarely, but it does. I'm going to jump in here and quickly say uh, this happens to women all the time because mm-hmm. women are often not believed when they uh, express their symptoms to a doctor. They're taken oh, less seriously, um, but that's a whole different discussion. Wait, actually, no. Can you tell us about that? How so? Um, well, it's, you see, there's like, there's different when, when, during a lot of like clinical studies and simply just because of the society that we live in, um, for a lot of diseases, it's always uh, through the lens of like how a man experiences something mm-hmm. instead of a woman. And um, when women go forward and say, oh, like I have this pain, I know that something is wrong with me. They are generally, you know, they they are more likely to be waved away and just be like, oh no, it's fine. It's fine. You're fine. It's, I want to say it, it kind of is related to like in Victorian times when a woman was just labeled hysterical, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but that is still that is still a very prominent issue, and uh, it also goes for um, people of color as well. People of color are not taken seriously at the doctor. Yeah. Um, okay, so definitely, um, I value definitely what you just said. I'll say this: I've had that experience too with doctors. I've given them symptoms before. I've like um, I got diagno- diag- diagnosed. <laughs> I got diagnosed with a TMJ disorder, right? And um, every doctor that I went to, dentist, orthodontist, uh, uh, maxilliofacial surgeon, right? I just had to remember the name of the specialty. Uh, every time I went to one of them and I described my symptoms and what's going on with me, they'd be like, mm, mm, yes, this is very common. It's very common. <laughs> this, this is what you, you know, uh, this is what you should do. Like these like exercises for your face and this and this. And I'd be like, I'm actually doing them. I've been doing them religiously hasn't improved anything. I still have pain. Is there anything else we can do? No, no, no. Simple, not simple, but uh, sorry. Now I'm probably, there's some kind of bias at play here right now. But I will say this, uh, in my experience, which is limited, so I'm sure there, I could have a different experience, right? I have to be open to that. Mm -hmm. Um, But in my experience, I have noticed that they, it's like, uh, I have not noticed doctors go what I would feel like is going above and beyond for you, 
you know, because a lot of doctor's visits are 10, 15, 20 minutes, mm-hmm. whatever. And so it kind of creates, uh, at least in me, like this feeling like, oh, okay, they're, they're not giving me a really personalized sort of session. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that's actually common for a lot of people. Like not a lot of people even really know their doctor very well. Mm-hmm. Some do and have a good relationship with the doctor. Yeah. But I think that's a that's a common experience and that probably doesn't help buying into the doctor's expert opinion on, on you know, how they evaluate you and yeah, stuff. That's true. And, yeah. yeah. Um, but still, you would, what, what I wanted to, why I wanted to jump in before is um, I would think that uh, statistically speaking, right? Uh, I don't have the statistics for this. <laughs> that's but, brilliant. That's one of like our quotes of the year. I know, I know. Statistically speaking, but I don't have the data to I'm back just, this up. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be honest. Right? I, we got to quote that as a caption for our show. <laughs> no, but what did, what did, okay. Listen to what I'm about to say. Then I you're will gonna, listen. Then, then you're going to probably agree. Okay. <laughs> would you say that the likelihood of an expert being right about something is is more than you if in a particular discipline like let's say in medicine i mean it's not just like i'm right or the doctor's wrong or the right. doctor's right or i'm wrong right. it's like uh, the doctor probably has a really good chance of being correct because of how much study and discipline they put into their particular field right yes so i mean but they could be wrong here's 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 what i like where you're going with this so like i was actually going to talk about this other article on being an expert and so the way this because I, I never i never freaking do this and i'm going to do this today because i never actually mentioned the author and i always feel so bad like when i cite articles i'm like oh yeah written by that person who i don't know <laughs> so this was an article called confidence tricks from AI magazine and it was written by a man named andrew little who's an assistant professor of uh political science at California, Berkeley. Mm. So he pretty much says that, like, look, there are different tiers of expertise, right? He says, like, there are sort of expertise tier one, which is sort of like the knowledge that kind of like everybody knows. Then there's sort of, or I'm sorry, there's not levels of expertise. There's like levels of knowledge. So there's a level, a level, level one, like, let's say where you have the people or the knowledge that's kind of like obvious where it's like most of us know it. Then you have level two, which is the knowledge that's only sort of grasped by experts in particular fields. And then you have level three, which is literally the questions that are unanswerable by anybody, including the experts. So like, you know, is there a God? Um, is there an afterlife? Is this drug safe? You know, sometimes you don't have these answers. Mm-hmm. So what he says is essentially, to go back to your point is um, when it comes to doctors, man, a lot of times they don't have the answers. And so sometimes like when a doctor tells you like, Hey man, like you could try these different things. What I wish they would do instead of saying that is to say like, Hey, look, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that you're suffering so much and I'm sorry that you're going through this. Unfortunately, just medical science has an advance to the point where we can actually give you a concrete answer. Yeah. So I could give you different choices. Like, by the way, psychi- good psychiatrists do this where they'll say something like, Hey, look, you know, um, with medication and a lot of my clients, by the way, they come in and they're like, I need to know like, what the right medication is because I'm like, none of this stuff is working, right? And so um, a good psychiatrist would say like, look, when it comes to medication, we don't really have answers, right? We're going to try different things. We're going to sort of adjust your medication here and there. But at the end of the day, it's kind of a crapshoot. We're going to sort of go to your medical history, see what hasn't worked, see what worked and like sort of maybe try different options and maybe even have a combination of medications. So I wish doctors did that more where they were able to say like, look, man, like, you know, for, um, for like what you're going through, I just, I wish I had better answers for you, but this is the best that we have. Because I think if I had to guess the way you felt was probably that you weren't doing something right or that that person just didn't care about you. Uh, both. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I wish that somebody gave me something. Right. You know, or at least gave me something concrete. Like uh, if they if they told me, like, there is no answer. 
you are done, my friend. You know? <laughs> I would, I still would have been happier with something like that as yeah. opposed to like, uh, no, 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 th- th- this is, this is what you need to be doing. And um, now that I hear that it doesn't work, I have nothing else to say to you. And yeah. Um, and like, I'm sorry, right? I'm sorry that you're going through this. That, that, that's definitely not what they said. Yeah. And, 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 again, <laughs> and it's like, and going back to the article, by the way, and this is like what the person kind of argues against in some way. He says like, look, man, he's like, the reason why experts do this, where they kind of like hide the fact that they're incompetent in some way. And obviously all of us are incompetent to an extent. And so what they do is because they're afraid, right? They're afraid in this case of losing customers and patients. Um, they're afraid of losing their spot on like CNN or whatever it is. So interestingly enough, what this guy argues in the article is he says essentially like what these people do is um, they actually fiend expertise at time at times because he says like for an expert it's actually kind of like a crapshoot so um, he says like when you think about like the, the 2008 financial crash when you think about like the war in Iraq right like nothing nobody really suffered for it so you have the, these so-called experts who make mistakes he says nothing actually happens to them so it's like they kind of can do one of two things they could either admit that oh this is like a level three question there's like really no answer to it or they could just pretend and like roll the dice and say oh well I think it's this and he's like it's probably 50 50 or whatever right maybe they'll get it right maybe they'll get it wrong but the problem is for an expert number one they're like competing with other people for their slot whether you're a dentist or some cnn expert or whatever some pundit or like on the other actually both and then on the other hand right they kind of like um in their particular sort of understanding they kind of think of it as who cares i can roll the dice and you know people will kind of remember that oh i was competent in these other areas so if i get this particular question wrong and you kind of see this in sports by the way because sports and analysts are notoriously awful so but the idea is if i get this question wrong who cares i, I have a whole track record of like being right about things also yeah, it's more uh, prevalent in the u.s um just based on uh individualism because i can imagine if there's a whole bunch of experts that are disagreeing with each other to get more clout uh other nations that have more of a collaborative and close society that would be less common because other experts would get together and try to think it so. out. Yeah. I'm going to roll the dice here and say absolutely it is more common in the US. Hmm, okay. <laughs> and I don't have the data <laughs> to back that up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, if, if, if we speculate on it, that's probably true, right? It I sounds mean, true. Uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't think that um, Dunning-Kruger is more of a an egoistic issue you would think it is right because you would assume your own ability is greater than it is it 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 really does kind of scream ego at me but uh it it might just be that um we have this we have something in us that wants to be certain of our world like like um that we want to make sure that the ground beneath us is stable Mm. Uh, that the world around us makes sense all the time predictable predictable and there's this thing we do where we try to rationalize all the time to make everything make sense right in order to feel comfortable and safe so i mean i would think other people do this as well i mean it's something that i don't think it's just in the u.s um the dunning kruger effect uh i mean uh david dunning and uh (laughs) I know his grad student was Kruger. I'm sorry, I forgot his first name. Mm-hmm. Whatever, uh, no disrespect. <laughs> but uh, I think it's a well-established um, uh, psychological bias, just right. in general. Uh, you know, as far as 
um, people in general go. Right, what's I, up? I, I do think it is related to ego. And although you are right, I think everyone can be susceptible to Dunning-Kruger, um, but there are uh, more collaborative-based societies where people are able to catch themselves mm. in order to kind of make themselves more useful or knowledgeable to the group instead of just like sticking their head in the sand. Um, I feel that even though you would want, everyone wants to be in a position where they feel comfortable and uh, assured and aware of the world around them. But even that is a sense of ego because you're really, you're the center of the universe and you want to make sure that everything is fitting just the way that you want it. Mm. And by the way, I wouldn't even be surprised if like the Dunning-Kruger effect is connected to what we're talking about in terms of like experts wanting to project, uh, let's say authority or competence in the world. I wouldn't be surprised if like when they do sort of project, you know, let's say guesswork or whatever, there's probably some egoistic side of them that says, oh, it must be right. Like it sounds right. And I'm, I'm an expert. I know what I'm talking about. So what I'm saying must Actually, uh, believe it or not, a lot of experts under, so a lot of people who are- I'm sorry, are but I'm talking as... about on the other end, the people who aren't real like experts experts oh yeah so they overestimate their ability the people right. who aren't experts and the people who are experts mm -hmm. interestingly enough underestimate their ability mm -hmm. um what's it called uh, imposter syndrome right? right that's actually kind of the inverse of the dunning-kruger effect that's true interestingly enough I, and i think what's probably going on there and i hope maybe you guys will weigh in on this uh what i think is going on is they because they know so much in their particular field they see the gradation of like the different skill levels in that field after getting some sort of a uh, like a foothold so to speak in that field for example like a mathematician say once they come to a certain level of proficiency in math uh, maybe it's only at that point that they could then appreciate all the genius mathematicians and their discoveries in in that particular field uh, for example I myself I'm I wouldn't really even call myself necessarily prof. I don't know what proficient in math necessarily means, but let's imagine a high level of skill, mm -hmm. whatever that means. Uh, for me, uh, I, I imagine uh, like a, a Nobel Prize winning uh, physicist introducing one of his discoveries, uh, perhaps in like a journal uh, entry or something like that. I probably wouldn't be able to interpret the data very well. And then maybe somebody who's proficient would, but then they're not even at that particular skill level. Mm -hmm. So there's there's levels to it. Right. Yeah. And then, oh, right. So what was the point of me bringing that up is uh, once you have a certain amount of level, you you know, you start to know how much you don't know. So that's so interesting. But like, um, so let me kind of sort of backtrack on what I said. So I'm actually, so... I was wrong, I think. So no, I am actually thinking about like experts when I said that like sometimes experts become full of themselves. They do. Yeah. They do. So I definitely yeah. think that um, I definitely think that there's a part of that where like obviously there's sort of this inverse relationship or you know kind of the more you know, the more you know you don't know. But then I also think, man, there are experts that kind of get full of themselves and they really do believe that they could sort of just throw answers out there and they're like, yeah, who cares? I mean, I know what I'm usually talking about, so there's a very high probability that I'm right. So. Yeah, so right, uh, these experts, they're not free of biases either, yeah. right? So that, that is something to take into consideration. That's why, um, going back to what we said at the beginning, like appeal to authority, mm -hmm. that fallacy uh, could really mess you up as well because just because the expert said it's true, okay, I'm not going to put any extra thought into it. 
and just give them that authority, they're right. right. But when in fact, if you look into it, maybe they're not. And But the thing is, I think that it wouldn't be necessarily, depending what field we're talking about, might not be necessarily my place to disprove that particular expert. Mm -hmm. I think it would be another expert's uh, job to disprove them. Like, uh, for example, uh, this goes back to something we talked about before the show. Uh, how do you how do you beat bad science? Right? It's with better science, with good science, or politics. How do you beat bad politics with with better politics? You don't want to just, you know, what's the opposite of appeal to authority? Uh, appeal to ignorance, mm -hmm. right? And you don't want to do that because then okay then whatever uh this expert is saying i'm just going to completely disregard what every expert says now mm -hmm. and then that could cause even more greater chaos right mm -hmm. um do you guys see i get i guess since i just mentioned politics do you guys see dunning kruger in politics oh Liz, you could take it away from that oh boy <laughs> okay <laughs> uh the dunning kruger effect in politics is extremely prevalent um and i think you know like we we can hear that connection and just be like yeah yeah of course we see it on the news we see it all around us especially today um interestingly enough there's not a lot of studies that delve that deep into it uh there is there is one that really kind of tackled it head on uh and it was called partisanship political knowledge and the dunning kruger effect and that was published a couple of years ago in political psychology by um ian anson mm -hmm. and um it pretty much the study seeks to answer a couple of different questions it was like one was um how much do americans overestimate their political knowledge and then also um how do how does partisanship also affect that? Does it make the effect of Dunning-Kruger higher or lower? Um, so 2,600 people, give or take, were polled. Mm -hmm. And the results were essentially, uh, so very, very low achievers mm -hmm. don't experience the Dunning-Kruger effect because they don't even um, have the awareness of how to uh, judge other people. Uh, the people that are most susceptible to Dunning-Kruger are people that are considered uh, moderately uninformed. Um, and these people are the most susceptible to political biases. And the Dunning-Kruger effect is even more enhanced once they essentially get into an echo chamber. And they will instinctively judge people on the other side of the political aisle as less knowledgeable as them. Um, so the people who, and I did mention before that the people who were the lowest in knowledge weren't affected. It also includes the people that are highest in knowledge. They're also not affected by um, partisan bias mm. in judging others. That's interesting. Very interesting. Wow. Yeah. You would think that the uh, people lower knowledge would be susceptible, right? Because they don't know what to think. So you would, you would just, I, I understand you're reading off of a study. So I'm just. Well, you know, I, I think yeah, the point is that they don't know what they don't know. Right, but uh, you, you would think that because you don't know, you're you're more pliable, so to speak, more malleable. You would think, mm -hmm. but Maybe. that's good. That's good to know as far as that goes. Yeah, um, I mean, there's always like this. Um, uh, not to take it too far into this topic, but there's also like that philosophical adage, right? That you're supposed to always be a fool or a beginner. 
So, mm -hmm. I mean, if, I guess according to the Dunning-Kruger effect, then the answer would be no, you're not supposed to do that because if you're the beginner, then you're going to think you're the expert. So I think from kind of Liz's perspective from that study, what they're saying is that no, you actually should be the beginner to some extent. Well, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, ideally an expert would also probably say that there's still things that they don't know that, uh, because more research, more peer review, more, more studies would, you know, uh, be able to, uh, accurately test um, yeah. certain uh, propositions. I, I, we're getting general here. That's why I'm you know, being mm -hmm. hesitant. And that but, is really uh, the hardest part when you do something like this, because mm -hmm. you always have to be aware of your biases. I definitely had to catch myself a few times uh, when I was like writing my uh, poli-sci thesis. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was like, I always had to. I always had to be like, am I cherry picking this data to fit in with my hypothesis? You know, I always had to be like, I hope I'm not doing that. I have to make sure I'm not doing that. I have, you know, it's just, it's, it's something that you have to be actively combating against <laughs> whenever yeah. you're trying to absorb new information, and that's hard. And I fall victim to Dunning Kruger, and I try to like have to remind myself that I don't know everything. Mm -hmm. And the other person on the other side of the aisle has something to teach me. Um, but especially nowadays, I think we should be more cognizant of that than ever. Yeah. Um, so but for the instance, biases, I think, are a big thing. The biases are, are one that we all know that once you get onto Facebook and you're clicking here and there, and then it becomes an echo chamber, and sometimes people can become even further radicalized based on... Um, the lack of competing information, but. No, no, actually I want to tag what you just said, actually. Yeah, um, I was going to get into that too, actually. So what happens is anytime they're shown conflicting info, let's say outside of that particular echo chamber, you're not going to like, they're not going to likely see it on their own Facebook page or whatever, but maybe when they're speaking to one of their friends or something who might lean differently politically. Mm -hmm. uh, if they hear something that counters what it is that they've been getting in that particular echo chamber, sometimes what you'll get is this impulse aversion to the info that you're providing as if it's nonsensical, can't be true. Yeah, you'll disregard it entirely. Yeah, which is really nuts. I wouldn't I would definitely not encourage that. Well, I mean, it's cognitive dissonance also. So I mean, it's natural. It is, but uh, I definitely don't encourage, because here's the thing. Um, I, if I had to rate myself, I think I lean left politically. That's that's kind of like how I, if I had to, you know, think about it. Yeah. But what I've been trying to do, uh, not trying, what I've been doing for past, like, I don't know how many years, several years, anytime I hear one of my friends who leans, let's say, politically right, uh, says something that, based on the news that I'm receiving, seems like, whoa, this doesn't make sense or whatever. Um, instead of just thinking like they're nuts for believing this, sometimes I'll just actually try to really research what it is that they're being exposed to and see if there are any kernels of truth in there or if it is actually true, am I getting something that's uh, biased towards me, uh, which I, I definitely am, less lately by the way because i've been actually following every single new source which is a headache by the I'm way sure. yeah imagine trying to aggregate all of that information and try and interpret it and then that's part of also 
uh, not Dunning Kruger in a, in a sense, but I, that's why I think like sometimes you do want to let authorities who deal with this stuff kind of parse out the info. Right. But you do have to be careful. Like, and, I always go back in a circle. I'm always in a circle with this. Like, here, here's why I think that's the case. So what I actually find is that like, so the right and kind of Republicans, whatever conservatives, is that they're actually right, right? So like a lot of what they believe is actually true, which I know everybody's like, oh my God, like, what does that mean? So it's only partially true. So I'll give you an example. So um, I was talking to somebody yesterday and she said, well, you know, like um, this guy who I'm like really good friends with. So he's like really upset because like he's, uh, I don't know, some, like, I don't know if he's the head of it, but whatever, he's somewhere in management of some construction company, right? And so he says, um, and I loved her response, which is what I'm going to get to. So, but he said, you know, he's like, I don't like that uh, the Republicans um, agreed to like, you know, giving out the unemployment benefits, like $600 on top of whatever, you know, the benefits were, whatever. I'm, I'm not even sure what the price is. Um, but so he's like, I don't agree with that, right? Because he's like, now we're trying to get construction workers back. And he's like, a lot of these guys don't want to come back to work because they'd rather stay on unemployment, right? So interestingly, he's right. I mean, that is a fact, right? A lot of these guys, they tried to get them back and they didn't want to come back to work because they would rather stay on unemployment, right? So one could easily look at that story and say, you know what? The Republicans are right about that. The problem is that's only a very small part of the pie and the very small piece of the story. Her response was, she's like, how much were you paying these guys? And he's like, oh, it was enough. And then she's like, okay, what's enough? Like, what are they, what are they making per hour? And he's like, oh, they're making like $18. She's like, oh, I see. So they're making $18 an hour. Now they're making more on unemployment, right? Do these guys have families? Yeah, they're all in like 30s, 40s. Uh -huh. So they have families, right? Do they have healthcare? Uh, no, but they can get healthcare on the exchanges or whatever. Oh, so they have to also now pay for healthcare, I see. So then she says, okay, so they're, they don't have healthcare. And then on top of that, like essentially they're pretty much getting paid like, you know, at least what to me seemed like starvation wages, $18 an hour, especially if you uh -huh. have a family. So then when you kind of piece together his perspective and her perspective, you can say, yes, the Republicans are right. That essentially a lot of these people don't want to go back to work. They're just wrong about why. Is it because these people are lazy or is it because half of the time, if not, I would probably say even 90% of the time, they're very underemployed, right? They're sort yes. of get saved nothing. Mm -hmm. So when we piece the sort of information together, which is what I think you might be getting too while you're doing it, is you actually see that Republicans are only giving you pretty much one side of the story. They're not telling you why. So it's like, why are so many people on welfare? Or um, why do people prefer to be on unemployment? Um, let's say, what else is there? Uh, why are people like struggling to pay for healthcare, right? Like these are questions that Republicans never have the answers to. You know, Tony, I, I would even be open to, uh, it's a little controversial, but I would be even open to hearing somebody, I would, I would love to have somebody like a Republican on to see what they would say to what you just said. Mm -hmm. Not because I think that they would be right or whatever. It would just be interesting to have that sort of discourse. Right. Because a lot of times people are, especially in the political realm, are such great sophists mm -hmm. that it's, it's interesting. Like sometimes people will make uh, certain arguments that sound like they, they make sense. Mm -hmm. And then it'll, it'll actually kind of start to turn you a bit. Mm -hmm. For example, yeah, I, I'm sure I could listen to somebody on the right come into this and be like, can I tell you what they're going to say? I actually know what they're going to say. And Liz will agree with me. They're going to probably say, oh, well, these are adults. What are they doing making $18 an hour? Like get another job. What are you doing? Go back to school. Um, go fill out your resume or something. Just you're, you're a man. Grow up. Grow up. Don't make $18 an hour. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and who knows? But imagine there would be also something else said. Who knows what it would be? Maybe. I, that's why I'm always open to that. I, I, I hear you. Yeah, um, it is very interesting. I don't know. Um, I digress, though. Um, well, I mean, so. Yeah. 
I was going to actually, so let's go back to Liz then. So Liz, what else did your article say, especially in terms of like political, uh, the political aspect of Dunning-Kruger? Interestingly, Dunning-Kruger does not affect uh, civic participation Hmm. and civic engagement. Right. So no correlation there, or at least a low one. There is no correlation, no. Hmm. And that will, that will even kind of enhance their partisanship even further because when they do go out and they are active in politics, they will usually only uh, surround themselves with people who hold the same ideas. Mm-hmm. So that kind of participation, unfortunately, does not bring a new element of knowledge. So it's, it's definitely a, a little bit of a, a systemic issue that I think is I'm trying to think of ways that we can kind of alleviate this problem, but. I have an idea. Of course you do. Ego ends now. That's <laughs> I, have an, I have another idea as well. Um, so I think one of the things that's magnified uh, the partisanship and sort of um, sort of infighting sort of thing is are the uh, algorithms designed to make your let's say newsfeed in whatever particular social media app you use uh to what turns them into an echo chamber i think it would be fascinating if we took that away uh it sounds kind of because here's the thing the the why it's why we have these algorithms it's for the purposes of marketing right for example somebody clicks on a particular uh product or uh, or they let know be known what their interest is, and mm-hmm. Google or, or whichever particular site you're using, that algorithm is then tailored to give you more of that stuff. This way, you can be a good consumer and get more of that stuff, or uh, or join this particular group or that particular page or whatever, right? And I I see the utility in it. Um, it actually sounds like a brilliant idea, mm-hmm. actually, initially. Mm-hmm. But the consequences of that idea are that, especially in the political realm, if you then start to become more radicalized in a particular direction, um, and that leads to more um, tribalism, which leads to more, you know, uh, groupthink, mm-hmm. it's... It's it complicates things terribly. For instance, for example, if if you're if you're with your friends, and one of your friends is like a diehard extremist, like I don't know, let's say, uh, a communist. Let's say they're radical left, right? Communism. For example, right? Whatever that means. <laughs> uh, and then anytime you um, try to have a conversation with them, they'll very certainly uh, espouse their ideas, their, their ideology, right? Uh, then maybe that certainty leads other people to be like, well, actually, I'm not even that certain about my particular political leanings. Maybe you'll actually start to then buy into what it is that they say. Mm-hmm. Or, or because you're in a group on Facebook, because all these other people buy into it, because of groupthink, you'll end up buying into those ideas. Right. Not every single person, anyone who's really using their critical thinking, and attempting to be as nuanced as possible and be as open as possible and critical and use their metacognitive abilities, mm-hmm. they're probably safer uh, in terms of, you know, uh, be joining a particular side just because there's so many people on that side. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure you guys would agree there's a lot of people out there who aren't 
thinking, trying to think that much about their political leanings, yep. at least in the realm of politics, yeah. right? Yep, and, and that's on the right and the left. Exactly. You know, it's just, I've seen uh, people on the, uh, you know, like leftists, like hard leftists, uh, behave the same way as the people that they are supposedly denouncing mm -hmm. exactly so. yeah uh and then also right and then the same and then the same thing for somebody on the right why I even yes. use the radical leftist examples because we kind of went into republicans before so i'm just trying to be fair both the sides uh, it's both sides <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and it's it's uh it's very scary and uh, i don't know i mean leon uh, what, what would you think is something we could do to um unhinge ourselves from from this divisiveness it's a good question i, mean, I have an idea oh sorry go on shoot go ahead oh. go for it <laughs> go uh, ahead and woman explain to us oh i definitely will uh, <laughs> that's gonna be something on twitter later i know right <laughs> <laughs> um there is another aspect that will determine someone's like over underconfidence <laughs> and this might be like a, a controversial thing, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, identity politics makes mm -hmm. this worse. So it's, you know, if you're, if you're looking at yourself and you have this, this self-image that is based on this like social construct, you will inherently judge yourself uh, based on that environment. So that will include like uh, racial and gender identities. And it will also include, um, there was one example where a uh, women in STEM will automatically rate themselves lower because of that societal bias that men are better at STEM than women. And this is actually a thing that really bothered me because I like, I, I do like web development and here and there like the it's definitely it's definitely a thing um but when so on like a for anyone who's unaware it's like when you code something um you pretty much like push it to this um site i guess called github and it's pretty much like a repo for all your code uh there was a Open study source, where right? women uh you know submitted their githubs with their names removed and so did men and women, when their names were removed, consistently scored higher from an, from an impartial judge looking at their code. Um, but when the names were put back in, uh, same exact code, same exact participants, the women were scored lower because they are perceived to be less capable than men. Mm -hmm. And it's really a shame when this is even falls on the woman, the, the, the woman also feels this way. So trust me, my imposter syndrome is totally real. And although, you know, you know intellectually that there is no difference between who can code better, a man or a woman, mm. that kind of, it, it, after hearing all of this for years when you're growing up, it just kind of imprints on your brain and you have to work really, really hard to shed that bias. So when it comes to uh, Dunning-Kruger and politics, it might be a little more helpful to ease up on the identity politics. That's not to say that a lot of the concerns of certain social groups aren't valid, but we do have to come to a place where we are uh, more than our gender and race societally implies that we are, like, like our abilities, I mean. Mm -hmm. 
I think that would definitely help narrow that gap between people who rate um, other people's performance. And it will, you know, it'll, it'll open you up to, to more ideas. So. So um, why I like that, why, uh, now I remember why I brought up that part earlier about taking away the echo chamber or the algorithm aspect, at least in, in terms of politics. Mm -hmm. What we used to have, right? I mean, people still had their particular news channels that they'd watch and, and all that and where they get their news. Mm -hmm. Sure. But they would still be exposed to all kinds of news before if I'm not mistaken, right? It feels like more of a, like a newer thing in the age of yeah. the internet. Yeah, partisan that, news, yeah, yeah, I think it is too. I, Fox News only- became, CNN was yeah. reputable. Uh, it still is. No, 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 no. but uh, I'm meaning <laughs> in context. Why? Sorry, go on. No, why not? CNN has biases and an agenda like any other news program. That's they want those views. They want those clicks. You know, it's, I don't think CNN has exactly helped uh, with the hyper-partisanship, but I'm not saying right. they're the worst, yeah. but I think they're susceptible, susceptible to it. So. Sure. I, I was just using them as an example. Okay. Or Fox or whatever. Yeah. Right. Like what, what Fox used a hundred percent. <laughs> Interesting. So uh, That's not what, what should we call it? So going back to uh, the point, though, is back in the day, somebody would be listening to all these different news sources. Right. I mean, not all the time. Uh, right. You're you're I'm making a massive generalization, but it didn't seem like people were uh, as many people were being radicalized towards a particular um, side on the political spectrum. Uh, you still had it before. You did have Republicans versus Democrats. This is a very old sort of a dichotomy, right? But it, the way it exists now in terms of like not being able to trust news if it's from this source or from that particular source um, and then also the news putting their opinions in, into into the news mm -hmm. like whatever happens this would be interesting actually as a solution if when their uh, news was reported you just report the facts <laughs> which sounds so simple it sounds so simple but you just report what happened right then you close your mouth you don't say anything else as far as reporting the news yeah. right that would be interesting uh because i feel like when you're throwing your opinions into it you could then be very persuasive and that you know that that comes into play and you may get a whole audience into a particular uh, news story and not be interpreting it the right way uh, you i could think be a big problem yeah. is that people don't know the difference between straight up news and news entertainment so if you are um you know i'm going to be fair here if you're tuning turning tuning into fox or msnbc at like nine o'clock you yeah. know um uh you know, Tucker Carlson is news entertainment. Rachel Maddow, love her, but she is news entertainment because she's still putting an editor editorialized right. uh, interpretation to what she's reporting. These yeah. should not be considered straight up news. But, you know, I will say I like watching MSNBC because I'll be honest, it's like masturbatory material for a leftist like myself, but mm -hmm. I know that going into it. 
I know that I can't take everything at face value. It's just something to kind of be like, haha, yeah, that's great. I'm going to laugh at this. But um, you got to be aware of that going in and you can't take whatever like Laura Ingram and all these, all these other people say at face value. It's... And- and then the other thing is they're also like shock jocks in the way because it's like yeah, i mean yeah. going back since we had a show on professional wrestling last week going back to what the great eric bischoff once said and wrote a whole book on controversy creates cash man anything that's controversial people will love to tune into it yeah just the consequences of that yeah. controversy are here's the thing sense. though these news sources and look nothing against cnn but it is what it is because it's a corporation they're for profit mm-hmm. This is what they do. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, you're making money in any way you can. So I forgot who it was, but there was like some famous journalist who once said, um, I don't even remember who, damn, I wish I remember the name now. So he said something along the lines of like, yo, we give people what they want. So if they want like new stories on like circuses and clowns or whatever, we are going to give them sur- stories of circuses and clowns. This is just what it is. So for these companies, like they're corporations, right? So, I mean, as a country, obviously we don't want state-run media, which obviously is a sort of negative thing in itself, or at least could be. So so what we have is we have these companies that run as companies. So, I mean, it's like, what do most people really want, right? Like even in terms of podcasting, right? People would like to be entertained. I mean, it just, it is what it is. And so yeah. for a CNN or whomever that said nine o'clock competing with like the National Football League, that's comparing, that's competing with Monday Night Raw and wrestling, that's competing with like sitcoms and whatever, they have to be entertaining. Yeah, but it, it was funny is, uh, okay, let's use uh, Joe Rogan as an example, right? He has three hour long podcasts right. on average, right, right. right? Sometimes I've seen an hour before I've seen longer than three. Okay. Yeah. He is able to have these long form conversations, right? And they've ended up being very entertaining for a mass audience. And he doesn't do that uh, clickbaity stuff, right? That, that uh, what's it called? Or also uh, what's called salience bias, which is a, uh, Salience bias is um, we tend to think what is negative is true. Like, for example, when you're putting out negative news all the time, Mm -hmm. uh, we tend to not just think it's true. We also tend to um, consume it Mm -hmm. more than Mm -hmm. positive stuff. Okay. Um, So I don't know. I don't think you have to do things that way. It's a proven method that works. And I listen, I I get it. If you want to make money and that's the way to make money, I get it, but it doesn't mean it's right. Yes. So, but the huge issue with like, with your perspective, and I definitely wish everybody could sort of go the Rogan route is that these companies are competing with each other. So CNN can actually like as a sort of corporation or whatever, as a news channel actually can go under, if they don't have enough advertisements. So like with Rogan, right. He's always going to have advertisements. I mean, he pretty much does what he wants. He's not competing necessarily with anybody. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he's kind of like world famous at this point. Mm-hmm. Whereas like for these companies, man, like they can easily lose an audience and that's it. And they also want to, you know, there's the people who run these media corporations are considered the societal elite, and they are never, ever, ever going to allow some, like a news report to go out that hurts their bottom line. Right. So, you know, you, what can't, you can't expect, uh, you can't expect anything unbiased as it stands right now, unless you're extremely picky. <laughs> so, yeah. it's true. And also what's nuts to me is um, back to Dunning-Kruger is the public's, uh, the public's attempt to interpret, depending which news you're listening to and all that, to interpret medical data. Uh, for example, if, if a top infectious disease uh, 
researcher uh, like uh, Dr. Fauci comes out and he says uh, to, every, he, you know, he says, you should wear a mask, right? Um, this, you know, this data that I've reviewed uh, reveals that we, we actually do need to take this uh, uh, virus uh, seriously. You should be wearing masks. You should be uh, this distance apart and, and all that. And then you'll have even other doctors, like a consensus of doctors also talk about the effectiveness of masks and all that. And then you'll still see news counter to that, citing maybe one or uh, two scientists or something like that, uh, supporting not wearing masks. And just because that supports a result that people, you know, for example, if there are people who don't want to wear masks, they're mm -hmm. going to look for anything that'll support them not having to wear it. But if a whole bunch of scientists agree that, you know, this, this is one particular action people should take, it's weird to me that um, people will try to interpret that and be like, no, this, this guy is, you know, uh, he's wrong. Dr. I'm so glad you brought that up. I am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause it's like, it's like how, uh, you know, Trump will only fill his cabinet with yes men. Mm -hmm. And like, uh, it's so 97% of scientists agree that climate change is man-made and it's accelerating, but that's 97%. But like Trump still went ahead and put in Scott Pruitt and like Andrew Wheeler to run the EPA and because they were going to go... <laughs> That's ninety-seven percent of what mm. these scientists said. Mm. It's oh god, so disastrous. <laughs> yeah, oh, and just going back to kind of like um, black and white thinking, which is something that we focused on. I think either in the last ep no, not in the last episode, the episode I think before the last episode is often in public sort of in the public understanding that the way it's presented is if there's some sort of disagreement, people often think of it as fifty-fifty, like oh, there's no consensus or um, there's some discord in the scientific community, and it's like therefore that means it's probably up in the air. It's just the theory. Um, maybe it's something that we need more research on. We need more evidence. Even yeah. though it's not, it's no, it's not that. Just like if you have like two people who disagree with like a hundred, chances are that uh, highly likely that the two people are wrong. Yeah, yeah, there's there's a consensus on on climate change. There's mm -hmm. yeah, it's climate there. change for <laughs> sure. Yeah, uh, there's also people who uh, just because enough people have said that the Earth is flat mm -hmm. and have used also sophistry in a way to just frame that argument in a way that maybe for 10 steps of that argument makes sense, mm -hmm. but then when explored further, it doesn't work out. Where conspiracy theories, oh, and depending you, on the conspiracy. Why I love that so much is like the one thing that I think we all learned, like when we were, in, uh, were undergrads, like as philosophy students, like, you know, I'm sure you guys have taken at some point, like some basic like intro to philosophy course, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Right. So it's like the reasoning is, it doesn't matter if the reasoning is right. The reasoning could be based on false premises. So I think the argument that they give is something like all men are like mortal, right? And it's like, obviously Socrates is a man, Socrates is immortal, right? So it's like, you know, so all of those premises are true, right? And obviously the argument is true as well. So it's because the logic. Yes. Wow. So the, yes. <laughs> so the logic is sound there. But if you were to change it a bit and you were to say something like all men are blue and then Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is blue, obviously the logic is sound, but obviously it's based on false premises. So the idea is that like what these sophists do is they create arguments that are really good that are based on obviously false premises. So you, I think with the flat earther, you could really easily say something like, I don't know, hell, have you ever felt that the world was round when you were walking, you know, for whatever amount of 
of time. Um, have you ever seen the edge of the earth and thought <laughs> like maybe it's possible that that edge sort of ends and then you can fall off of it, right? So these are arguments that are seemingly plausible, obviously, if you don't know enough information. So what they do is a lot of times like they kind of create these wonderful arguments or seemingly wonderful, obviously, but the arguments make sense. So it's not the point that they don't make sense. I mean, obviously they make sense. There's a reason why people buy into them. I mean, they're not just absurd arguments. They're based on some data. The problem is they don't focus on all of the data. So like a flat earther won't tell you exactly why it feels like, oh, oh, maybe there's a thing called gravity, which is why it doesn't feel like we're walking around in the round circle when we're sort of crossing the globe. Or it feels like, you know, sort of we're um, lower to the ground or we're like sort of, what's the word? Um, we're um, kind of zeroed in on the ground or whatever. So, so the point is that, you know, they kind of sort of find information that sort of suits an argument that in the end makes sense. I'll say this though, um, even though of course I, I dismiss um, what's, you know, this idea of flat earth mm -hmm. in general. Anyway, when somebody does bring up an idea of like flat earth or um, alien, this is not, by the way, I'm not just because I'm uh, juxtaposing this next, this doesn't mean that I'm putting it at the same level of validity. I'm just thinking of things to mention. Mm -hmm. So somebody <laughs> says, like, for example, uh, you know, something about aliens or uh, Gulf of Tonkin conspiracy, <laughs> or they'll talk about uh, you know, th there's another conspiracy going on with the Bill Gates vaccine or, or whatever. Like, I'm just making up things. That, I'm trying to be as random as possible to not, you know. Uh, I'll be very open to hearing, like, what is the data that they're looking at to support that particular argument? Like, I I'll try not to have that, like, that initial impulse reaction of just being like, what is this ridiculousness right now? You know, like, you don't, I don't want to do that either because. But what if one day I do that and they're bringing up something that's actually valid and just sounds like it's not valid because I'm at the moment buying into some narrative. Right? <laughs> but do you know why people do that? Like how much time do we have to spend on like every conspiracy theory that's put out? Like imagine if you oh, sat there and you're like, I'm taking all of these seriously. Let's go do the research. No, I agree with you. You don't have the time. Yeah. You don't have the time and resources to interpret their uh, proposition, right? That's why you, you do uh, give authority to experts to interpret these things, right? That's true. Uh, but I'm just saying, if somebody does bring up these ideas, I'll try, you know, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and just go with where they're going with it. Because I don't like to dismiss something immediately as, as wrong. Okay. You know? I mean, I'm not against know. it. It's just my thinking is that it would be impossible for us to do that all the time. I'll at least be open to it to not shut them down immediately. I won't say like I agree with what it is that they're saying. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll leave it hanging up in the air, so to speak, as something that I'll be like, okay. And I won't try to say yes or no to it immediately, depending what it is. Right. So, I mean, can I bring up uh, uh, an example that may not necessarily be a popular one? So, uh, <laughs> so Jordan Peterson, right? Yeah. So Jordan Peterson has this argument and I feel like whenever I talk to people who are like, uh, who like Jordan Peterson, they, you know, kind of give this argument often. Um, and so it's sort of, it's partially true, but from my perspective and like no disrespect to Jordan Peterson fans, I don't think it's a perspective that should be taken so seriously. So here's the kind of nuance, and I'm going to preface this before saying what I'm going to say. What he says is legitimate to an extent, except for I don't, so like, let's say there are degrees of seriousness, right? So let's say a hundred percent is where you would say this thing that Jordan Peterson says is absolutely something we should like consider and we should investigate and we should think about and talk about 
out, et cetera, right? And then let's say 0% is where we're like, yeah, who cares? Like he's an idiot, you know, we shouldn't consider this at all. So let's say I'm about like at the 20 to 30% mark of taking Jordan Peterson's idea seriously. Okay. So what I'm sure you guys already know, and for the audience, what he believes is that when it comes to freedom of speech, right? If you take away certain speech and you call it a hate crime, essentially it's like the road to kind of totalitarianism, right? So the way he kind of presents the argument is that, well, if you look at, you know, China's uh, Mao's China and you look at the Soviet Union, et cetera, these were all of the steps that were taken, probably even Nazi Germany, he would say, is that these are the steps that were taken, you know, towards obviously sort of totalitarian, you know, kind of whatever states. Mm -hmm. um, so the reason why I wouldn't take Jordan Peterson so seriously in this case is because he's pretty much comparing apples to oranges. So although what he says is absolutely true, this definitely did happen in these states, going back to the diagnostic example, right? This is only one aspect of those totalitarian states. So he's saying and generalizing, he's saying, here's this thing, right, that these other people did. And therefore, now we should be afraid that this is what's going to happen. So this thing that happened here at these other places can happen here because of this one instant and this one thing that's happening here. So the big differences between, I would say, the two kind of like the two different, I guess, parties or whatever states is that when it kind of COVID came to Soviet Russia, they were silencing political dissonance, right? They weren't silencing people who hurt other people's feelings. They weren't saying like, oh, you're being um, anti-scientific or you're being hurtful or whatever. They were silencing people because they were saying they were enemies of the state. You know, these are people that are like villains or whatever. We should be worried about them. Mm -hmm. So mm, that sounds and, familiar. <laughs> Right. So, and then and in our case, right, when we're talking about when people are transphobic, I mean, they're literally hurting other people's feelings. I'm pretty sure the trans community isn't all of a sudden going to rise up and turn into the, you know, turn us into a communist sort of state and revolt or whatever. We're not going to have, you know, a Lenin of whatever, of, you know, sort of the gay community or the trans community. So the point is that what he's doing is he's generalizing. And I get that it comes from a place of fear. But the point is that when you kind of look at his argument, again, going back to the levels of seriousness, right? Just like, I guess, a person who um, doesn't have hypochondria, right, might say something along the lines of, um, frequent urination, right? He could say, okay, I'm frequently urinating, right? Maybe this could be diabetes. Maybe this could be prostate cancer. Chances are because I don't have any other symptoms that it's probably not, right? I mean, I could see the doctor or whatever, but the point is that on the level of seriousness, you would maybe put it at like a 20%. You could say, maybe this is something serious. Chances are that it's not. So going back to the Jordan Peterson argument, I don't take him seriously because I think what he says is just, it's, it's coming from a place of fear. And interestingly enough, I know Alan knows, but did you know that Jordan Peterson's house is literally full of portraits of Hitler, Lenin, Stalin, and all of these tyrants that he's afraid of. Yeah, I'm not kidding. His entire house is just wall to wall covered in paintings of these tyrants. And I think he's so, yeah, it's so wild. Like talk about like just a phobia. So my thinking is like, he's so terrified of these people that somehow putting them or surrounding them himself with them somehow like helps ease his anxiety of it. But okay. he says it's a Yeah, and he says it's a motivator. He's like, if Same I- reaction. Right. And it's like, and he says like being surrounded by these people is like motivated. He's like, this is how I like fight tyranny, whatever. But the point is that again, going back to the Peterson argument, it's not that it's absurd. So I'm not saying like, oh, he's like a crackpot or anything. He isn't right. But he would be akin to me of a hypochondriac. So what I would say is that, okay, what you're doing is you're literally taking one piece of data, which is, you know, silencing of free speech, you know, hate speech. And then you're saying that generally speaking, we are moving towards this broad totalitarian state. And I would say, I need way more evidence than that so he'd be like did you read solzhenitsyn's uh, gulag archipelago <laughs> <laughs> i don't even know what that is oh no no what is it oh 
we'll get into it in another okay. show. I, I need to actually like research it before I okay, get okay. into it. Okay. It'll actually reference that. It's like, oh, that's, that's an example of a totalitarian uh, government and, and uses that to support his arguments a lot. Right, right. And again, so I, I think it, number one, we need to have more evidence of totalitarianism, right? And then the other thing is we also can separate the fact that like when sort of speech is suppressed and how it's suppressed. Because again, in this country, when speech is suppressed, it's literally because people are being assholes. It's not suppressed because they're anti-government or they're trying to resist or whatever it is, right? These are not, whatever, I don't want to say bad people, but uh, I mean, I don't want to say good people, but whatever. They're not, they're usually assholes and we're like, dude, just stop being a dick. Like that's all we're really asking from you. So. That's my spiel on that. And no, it's, it's important also to have a certain level of humility when you don't know something. You shouldn't pretend to know, right? So for example, anyone who's um, like, uh, right, back to Dunning-Kruger, right? If, if you don't have a fair amount of competence in a particular uh, subject, it would be good to have a sort of metacognition, sort of look at yourself objectively, be like, okay, maybe I don't have a, a great skill level in this particular domain, mm -hmm. right? Um, that's That would be better than assuming that you know, right? Um, that level of humility probably also helps you with other people as well. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, you know, th this guy's, uh, or this this person is straightforward. They know when they don't know something, right? Maybe they'll they'll actually defer to an expert that that's actually a reliable way of thinking, right? Mm -hmm. Also a leader, for example, I mean, I'm not gonna get too deep into this. This is just a, an example that just came to mind, the president, right? I mean, the president should obviously have people around him that are experts in certain domains of knowledge um, and defer expertise to them, mm -hmm. not assume that he knows better than them. Right. There's a reason why they're assigned to their particular post. You couldn't possibly have all the information you need. Okay. There are too many variables to pay attention to. Imagine how hard it is to be the president, by the way. Like they're probably in a 24 hour period. Not, you know, you have to sleep, obviously, but you're not going to be able to know everything that's going on in the world and be able to address certain like there's so many things going on. It's so hard to address or choose what to address, yeah. right? So crazy that he finds time to tweet. <laughs> and golf. And golf. And golf. Yeah. I think it's like what two hundred and eighty-five times he's been to his golf course. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, somebody's gonna always make that argument where they're like, "Well, the president needs to unwind; otherwise, it's too stressful. He could lose his mind." You know, <laughs> I'm making it up. Somebody's gonna always have some of kind course. of argument. Yeah, for it. yeah, you know, or it's like, "Oh, he owns those courses, so you know, it doesn't matter," or whatever. Mm -hmm. Sure. But, you know, he yeah. did say he was gonna be too busy to golf. Anyway, <laughs> no, this is my bias showing. My apologies. It's okay. Um. <laughs> There's this cool thing from um, an article by uh, Kate Fellhaber um, on Aeon. It's called, the article is called What Know-It-Alls Don't Know or the Illusion of Competence. Mm -hmm. And there's uh, one study that she cites. One study found that 80% of drivers rate themselves. I know, by the way, I shifted from politics to drivers, but 80% okay. um, of drivers rate themselves as above average, a statistical impossibility. <laughs> and similar, tr similar trends have been found when people rate their relative popularity and cognitive abilities. The problem is that when people are incompetent, not only do they reach wrong conclusions and make unfortunate choices, but also they're robbed of the ability to realize their mistakes. 
uh, in a semester-long study of college students, good students could better predict their performance on future exams given feedback about their scores and relative percentile. However, the poorest performers showed no recognition. Despite clear and repeated feedback, they were doing badly. Instead of being confused, perplexed, or thoughtful about their erroneous ways, incompetent people insist that their ways are correct. <laughs> As Charles Darwin wrote in The Descent of Man in 1871, ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. Right. That's interesting how that goes hand in hand, right? Uh, being ignorant, you know, you will overestimate your ability, right? Yeah. It's, you know, I, I, I'm yeah. going to give you guys a personal example of that. So I remember when, um, so when I actually was sort of a, I guess I am to some extent still, when I was like a big know-it-all, I remember when I was in college, like I used to think, man, like, yo, I'm like, I'm really fucking smart. Like I know a lot of shit. Right. And then, so as I kind of, you know, as I got older, right. And then I started reading kind of more difficult material. And I remember thinking like, Oh my God, like, did I like suffer brain damage or something? Wow. Cause I like, don't understand any of this stuff. And I'm like, what the fuck happened to me? I'm like, I don't even understand. Was it like too much alcohol or something? So <laughs> as I kind of got older in my like mid to late twenties, right. I'm like really questioning my intellect. And then I'm like, yo, I don't understand. Like I had to have gone dumber over the years because I remember I was really smart back in the day. Right. So then I decide like at some point to go to the evidence right i'm like you know what let me go read some of my brilliant college papers right and as i'm going through them i'm like these are fucking awful i'm like these are terrible how the hell did i ever think i was smart <laughs> so the sort of assessment or the understanding that i essentially came to was i was probably a dick back then and i probably overestimated my abilities and intellect and then as i kind of started realizing how much i didn't know that's when i became kind of more uh, i guess more accurate in my assessment but interestingly i was like yo how did i get so dumb what but here's happened? the thing also <laughs> Dunning, so on one level, you could interpret it that way that uh, Dunning-Kruger usually implies, you know, uh, somebody's dumb or has low competence. I get it. It would imply that they're dumb, right? But like, let's say an example of uh, some your friend at, at karaoke. They usually don't go do karaoke. Mm -hmm. They have a, an, a performance. And then when they did it, they, afterwards to themselves or maybe they'll to you, they'll be like, oh, I nailed it. That was great, <laughs> yeah. you know? But then... You actually look at their performance and it wasn't like anything particularly special right but they'll overrate themselves <laughs> yeah. um and but you know what's but do they have to be great right like in that particular instance that's fine it's just an example of dunning kruger but at the same time i'm not gonna necessarily judge them in that particular instance yeah right? so it's like i think what you're saying is dunning kruger is pernicious at times but not always yeah it, it, it depends what domain we're, we're speaking of. But yeah, I think we could be forgiving, you know, if somebody is uh, falling under that bias as well. Right. But then, I mean, and I think I'm sure Liz would agree with this and would have more to say. So maybe as a country, we shouldn't elect people who necessarily are susceptible to Dunning-Kruger. Oh, I'm That would so be nice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, would, that would be extremely, extremely helpful. And, you know, yeah, get experts in the field. Get experts... Uh, to, in your cabinet that actually put scientists in science positions. It's, yeah. yeah Sorry, just, I'm just like, I'm just a little like overwhelmed with just how ridiculous everything is. And I'm no genius, you know, like I feel, I feel like a dumbass all the time. That's like my default state. But for certain positions, I will appeal to authority and yeah. they should be in those positions. 
because who are you getting? Like you're getting a, like Rick Perry was like, what, you know, was for the, uh, you know, was like chosen as the chair for the <laughs> Department of Energy. Like right. he made a whole speech about wanting to dismantle it. You know, like how are you going to further any kind of uh, agenda that can be maintained in subsequent administrations if you're going to choose these improper people? Because yeah. all of this is just going to be reversed. Um, so have people who are knowledgeable in their field, are willing to take criticism, are not yes men, and you're going to find uh, policies that are going to last more than four years or eight years for one single administration. I, I like that you said be able to take criticism. That's very important, right? To, to be able to ask for feedback on your own performance in whatever the domain is, mm -hmm. I think is an important way out of done that, that bias, right? For instance, um, maybe, you know, this is just a, why not? We'll use ourselves as an example, mm -hmm. right? Uh, our podcast. I'm sure that every time we finish a podcast, not every time, but we've had some podcasts where we're like, that was great, man. That was so good. You know, we'll say to each other, right? <laughs> the best podcast. But then I wonder what, you know, I mean, we get feedback from listeners, but sometimes, yeah, sometimes you don't. And then you wonder what, like what, you know, it, it, are they enjoying this? Are people just listening to this and they're not saying something? Mm -hmm um do they want to say something but they're not like what's going on here right and they you know and sometimes you need that feedback this way you know like how well you're doing you don't want to just assume you know after like a year you know and imagine you're doing the same things and you didn't learn you know what what else you needed to change or do here or do there or turn this gear this way or you know so that that is also very interesting too like i'm sure we've i definitely know we've especially earlier on like one of our probably one of our first episodes we we're like that was amazing that was so good <laughs> and then i was probably think, I, I thought in my head afterwards like wait what if that's the dunning kruger effect <laughs> you know? could not be too yeah but, you know. if someone is like resistant to new information and they get angry or hostile or start calling you names and all that um that's uh that's just someone subscribing to like uh a preferred world state or even in certain in certain conversations like just world theory like well this happened to you so you must have deserved it even though other information that's given doesn't really back that up yeah so. and, then, and interestingly enough i mean whatever this is by the way interesting to me and i hope it's interesting to you guys too so something that we've talked about or i've talked about frequently the great movie moneyball so um so we keep talking about like growth and like you know fixed mind states and we i, I keep talking about moneyball so and what's interesting is carol dweck actually recommended moneyball as like one of the best books on mindsets by the way i don't know if i've ever told you that yeah yeah so um so just like kind of a brief rundown of moneyball so what was so cool about it is kind of going back to what liz was saying is so billy bean the guy who was the general 
general manager of the Oakland A's at the time. So he was actually a, like a highly scouted baseball player. And unfortunately for him, he was, and I really do mean unfortunately. So he was actually picked out like when he was 17 years old. So instead of like maturing and going through college, he was automatically in the MLB. And so the problem with him was at the time was that he was like highly narcissistic and he was super talented, but he was also highly narcissistic. And so the idea was that he wasn't supposed to go through growing pains. The notion was fixed mindset. If I'm good at something, I'm going to be naturally good at something. If I'm bad at it, I'm going to be naturally bad at it. So even it, I'm going to just kind of feed off a little bit off of Carol Dweck's description. So she says, you know, when he was like kind of a kid still at the time, when he would strike out or um, let's say when sort of just in general things didn't go his way, he would throw these tantrums. He would like break the bats, right? He would kind of flip out. And so for him in that fixed sort of way of seeing the world, he wasn't actually able to kind of grow in his skill set. So even though he had the potential to have been a great baseball player, which obviously all of the scouts agreed on, he unfortunately never became one. So what was so cool about this book is that pretty much as he kind of grew up and then he eventually became the general manager of the Oakland A's, he turned into one of the greatest general managers of all time. And one of the sources of this was actually the growth mindset. So because like the way kind of baseball was structured at the time, they had sort of a way of doing things. So the way that they would scout players was essentially, they would kind of like look for physical appearance and they would say, oh, this guy has like a strong jawline. You know, they have like good muscle definition. They're very tall, right? They must be a great athlete, right? So we'll bring all of these guys, these good looking guys in. Um, and so pretty much they went for like that. They went for like the big stats, like home runs right and even singles too like to a point I mean, if they couldn't get the big home run hitters. So what Billy Bean realized based off this sort of statistician is this statistician's, um, let's say, model of kind of like, let's say, being a general manager of this model of forming a team is that essentially you don't need, number one, you don't need people who are great looking to be good baseball players. Number two is you also don't need people who are heavy hitters to be good baseball players. So what he found is that as long as you get people who actually get on base, that's the only thing that matters. And there was this great scene in Moneyball where like Brad Pitt's character, Billy Bean, asks Jonah Hill's character, character so they were like they were all around the table and so they're like wait why would we bring this guy in he doesn't he doesn't hit he's a terrible hitter and so brad pitt's character looks at jonah hill and he says do i care if he gets on base? no do i care if he hits and so jonah hill's character is like no you do not and he's like do i care if he gets on base and he's like yes you do there's something along those lines mm -hmm. and so the idea was that so what kind of billy bean learned as he grew up was that it's okay to adapt that you're just not automatically going to be great at what you do that you have to actually learn and you have to get better at it and so what i love about the growth mindset i would say is since i never really got to answer your question before if there's any sort of particular way from a psychological perspective Obviously, you guys kind of have a more social answer. For me, from a psychological perspective, if there's any sort of antidote to Dunning-Kruger, it's actually the growth mindset. I would say it's oh. to sort of, yeah, it's sort of to teach kids at a young age that like, you know, this is the way to do it. So it's like, it's not as though talent equals success, right? It's not that simple. It's talent, luck, hard work, sort of, you know, kind of um, sort of the amount of effort and the amount of energy you put into whatever task you're working on. That's what all equates to success. And so why I love this book so much and why I love the movie, obviously, is because what he learned in the film is that even though he failed initially, he kind of figured out that, no, I actually failed because of myself, that I actually did have the talent. So somewhere down the line, he kind of figured out that I was actually kind of like a spoiled brat. 
So the way I was acting was that it was, that's what sort of hindered my career. It wasn't the fact that I didn't have the talent, which he initially believed. It was the fact that I, my mindset was all fucked up. So as he became a general manager, he kind of realized that like, dude, if you want to be great at something, you have to actually also put in the effort. You're not going to just naturally be good at it. So again, from my perspective is that if we could start teaching kids about the growth mindset, that'll make it much less likely that they're going to kind of think of themselves as like natural experts or whatever. They're going to sort of see that anybody who even is an expert, guess what? They learn shit too. Yeah. And don't call kids gifted or geniuses yeah. because that's how they get complacent. And then when they do eventually have difficulty mastering something and they will, they're going to just give up entirely. And that's the that's first sign of struggle. That's actually what happened to Billy Bean. So the thing is with him, because he was such a gifted player, everybody kept telling him how wonderful he was. And can you imagine what that's like for a kid at 17 years old to go into the majors? Like that must have been incredible. It's gotta I, be amazing. Imagine how high you feel. Yeah. And I, I, I can't, first of all, I mentioned the pressure. And then I also imagine like what he thought of himself. He must've been like, oh my God, even like the greatest players weren't scouted at 17. Like I'm amazing. I have this amazing, I want to be great, right? So then obviously it kind of got to his head and then, you know, you contrast it, right? Going back to black and white thinking. You go from, here's what everybody thinks. Here's what I'm doing right now. And it's like, there's such a big discrepancy. You think there's no way I'm going to go from here to here. And then eventually he honestly, he gave up. I think he was on like three or four different teams with before he eventually just retired. You know, not every expert is um, self-effacing and, and humble, but it is something that tends to happen to you as you start to build skills in a certain domain. And uh, like you said, the growth mindset is perfect actually for getting out of Dunning-Kruger. It's to know that you can always improve upon your ability, that there's levels to it and that you actually can get better and that it just takes work and effort and, and grit. Yeah. And then even yeah. sometimes going back to those level three questions, sometimes they're just questions that you're not going to have answers to because no one does. And that's okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. All right, guys. There. Yeah. yeah. That's a, that's a pretty good point to end off. Man, this was such a good show, as we always say. <laughs> Kruger. No. no, but listen, this was, this was super fun, dude. You were really good, man. Thank you. Thank and, uh, you. Wanted to follow you on Twitter. Yes. Uh, how can we find you? Uh, so I am on Twitter at Liz is sentient. So mm -hmm. go ahead and give me a follow if you feel like it. Wait, how is it spelled though? Uh, L I Z I S S C N T I E N T. Oh, never mind. I thought it was spent with an, uh, spelled with an I Z. My bad. Cool. And listen, since it's you, we'll just leave it on. We won't kick you out of the room. We'll just say this last part. Uh, if you guys want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter at Seize underscore podcast. And like, subscribe. Hit the bell. Hit the bell. <laughs> and then also you can find us at the O4L Online Network at O4LOnlineNetwork.com. You can find us under the STM podcast section. I think it's on the top left or maybe now in the middle. So Vegas always frequently if he does the site there. Um, so you can obviously follow Vegas Media Designs on Instagram. He's awesome and he takes care of all of our artwork. And then also be on the lookout for this week's episode of Heart of an Outlaw with Andy O'Farrell. He has Napoleon on. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And guys, thank you so much for watching. Look forward to our next episode. We'll have Samir Chopra back on. So yeah, that's exciting. Excellent. All right. See you guys next time.